You're listening to DraftKings Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Winning time. Finale is done. First season is done. Amin, your thoughts? Yeah, man. I watched every episode of Winning Time, and after all 10 episodes, I can honestly say that apologies are in order. For sure. To Jerry West, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. Jerry West, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, every old-timey fart that wrote this series off and said it was inaccurate, and they complained about inaccuracies. All of you need to make a massive apology to Adam McKay and to the people behind Winning Time because it was so overwhelmingly accurate. <laughs> were there things they embellished? Yes. Were there things that were not in the right order and of the timeline? Sure. But I would say upwards of like 90% of this was pretty accurate down to the stuff that I learned, like Spencer Haywood actually did try to contract a hitman to kill Paul Westhead. And lest you think that, I mean, those are just rumors or conspiracy theories you hear or whatever, I found an article in People magazine talking about this, written by whomst. Who do you guys guess wrote this People magazine feature about Spencer Haywood hiring a hitman from Detroit to try to kill Paul Westhead for removing him from the team? I don't know, but I'm just really excited to use the word whomst. Whomst? Whomst, I say. It was Spencer Haywood who wrote it. What? Wow. Well, it kind of makes me think, I mean, maybe all that controversy with Jerry West and the lawsuits and Magic Johnson going to Variety or Hollywood Reporter and making a big... Yeah. What if it's all just orchestrated? Ooh, Adam McKay got them 
to be angry about Adam McKay in order to make this thing blow up even more. Much like Mel Gibson angering people with Passion of the Christ, who said boycott Passion of the Christ, and in essence made Passion of the Christ a smash hit because people wanted to know what the big deal was. Tom, dare I say it? Your third eye is open wide and is winking at me. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but... all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haberstroh. And as always, I'm joined by my five-star generals. Mm, about time. Like an Uber rating. Amin El Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Lots of eyes to open, minds to be changed, worlds to explore in this episode. We're going to have an exclusive interview with an award-winning journalist, someone who has appeared 11 times in Best American Sports Writing, he investigated the 1985 NBA draft lottery, the frozen envelope theory, all of that, the bent corner theory. And we learn a shocking, never before told, behind the scenes story that will change the way you think about big media. Oh man, I am so excited for this, guys. Patrick Ruby. I feel like a Tecapacito right now. That's how excited. Can we just get through the rest of this show already? Yeah, yeah. Hold on. But before we get there, I also did some of my own research, Amin, and I will present those findings in a segment that we like to call Tom Did His Own Research. But first... You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El Hassan. Right on the agenda today, we got to talk about this Boston Celtics Milwaukee Bucks series back and forth. It's ugly. There's elbows being thrown. There's dunks. There's dudes with green hair. There's all sorts of snarling and technical fouls. I mean, this is just great basketball. This is a great Eastern Conference matchup, isn't it? Oh, man. It's the drama of the playoffs, Tom. That's what we love to see, man. We love to see the game be played out right before our eyes that the Balance of power. Mm. Indeed, the fate is controlled by the participants of the game. And that's what we saw, wasn't it, Tom? Uh, well, you know, I think Boston fans are feeling victorious, not just because they won the game, but they won the game with Tony Brothers involved. 
the game within the game. That's right. I mean, there was a game within the game. This is inception. This is basketball inception. I saw you tweet about this the other day. Yeah. So Celtics fans, they get really riled up when Tony brothers is involved and mm-hmm. this seems anecdotal evidence to me when any fan base is like, oh, like Utah with Kane Fitzgerald or Ed Malloy in Minnesota. Yeah, you remember that one time that they teed up or threw out a player or blew that call at the end of the game. But what we do on this program here is we actually look this up referee data, actual information that isn't just hearsay or anecdotal evidence. And what I found was, I mean, that the Celtics fans have a lot of beef with brothers for a good reason. What? Yes. The Celtics have beef with brothers. I mean, <laughs> no Boston. Look, that, that place is worse than anywhere. Bill Russell won the motherfuckers. 11 rings. Comes home to his abode to find the door open. They didn't even have the decency to burn a cross on this man's lawn. Just shit in his bed. Not dog shit neither. Man shit. Over their last 12 playoff games, the Celtics had been 2-10 and 10 with Tony Brothers officiating and 2-9-1. and nine and one. There was a one that was a push against the spread. What's Tony Brothers ref rating? He's a 5.0. If you don't know about the ref rating, again, you got to go back. You got to listen to these podcasts, guys. It's evergreen material. Go back and listen to us explain how the ref ratings are arrived at. And 5.0, Tom, is how high on the ref rating scale? It is the tops. It means that he has been a crew chief in every single regular season game. But in this game, he was actually not the crew chief. I'm talking about regular season. He was a crew chief, which is only handed out to like a dozen officials that get that kind of accolade, right? And in the postseason, he's actually been bumped down to the second ref at this stage of the postseason. He was the second ref behind James Capers. And maybe he didn't have as much influence on the game as he would have liked because the Boston Celtics did win. The Bucs were favored by one and a half points. And the Celtics entering this game on Monday night, they had lost five straight playoff games on the road with Tony brothers on the game. And also They had lost 10 of the last 11 games as the underdogs. So the Celtics fans had every reason to be very, very upset to see Tony Brothers working this game. And the first eight calls that Tony Brothers made, first eight foul calls that he made, I think seven of them were against the Boston Celtics. But a big one, a big one that even the scales a little bit was when Giannis ended a Kumpo snarled at Al Horford. And what had Tony Brothers do? Teed him up. Teed him up. So look, all it took for this to happen, I mean was that Al Horford had a career game. Yeah, literally had to play out of his mind. (laughs) Can you believe that stat that Al Horford is now the record holder for the guy who had the most playoff games without a 30-point performance? Like in NBA history, no player has played that many playoff games without scoring 30 points or more. Last night, it made history. He gave up that record. Took one for the team by absconding with that record. Last year, the Thunder sent him home. Yeah, said, we'd rather you not play basketball. What? Shout out to Sam Presti. What if that is the new inefficiency in basketball? The Phoenix Suns don't go to the finals until they get Chris Paul, who basically took a year with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Yes, he played those games, but something in the water in Oklahoma City, maybe. Yeah. Too bad that Kemba Walker thing didn't work out for the Knicks. There are some forces that are too strong even for the Oklahoma City thing. But it's funny, I was on Levitard's show on Tuesday and I was talking about 
you know, Dan said, where, where have we seen this before? And the only performance I could think of, and I'm bringing this up because I'm wondering if you guys can think of something else. The only thing I could think of was Robert Ory in game five of the 2005 NBA Finals between the Pistons and the Spurs, also known as David Stern's Nightmare. <laughs> Detroit-San Antonio Finals. I know he must have been mother someone in the office. Foreshadowing, yeah. In yeah. that game five, Robert Ory ends up scoring 18 points in the fourth quarter and overtime combined and basically willing the Spurs to an improbable victory, including those 18 points, of course, is the three-pointer that ties it up at the end of regulation where Rasheed Wallace, one of the smartest players to ever play basketball, yep. makes one of the dumbest plays ever, doubling on Ginobili, leaving Robert Roy wide open, even as they were all instructed in the huddle, nobody help. Everything is single coverage. Where do you put Shane Battier against the Spurs for the Heat when he just hit every three-pointer? Was that game six or seven? Game seven of the 2013 NBA Finals. Shane went six for eight from downtown and just had the game of his life as a 34-year-old. That's up there. Yeah, that's up there. The other one that Mike Ryan came up with was Josh Smith. Game six of Rockets versus Clippers. <laughs> yeah. If you remember, that was where they went down 3-1 in the series and made this remarkable comeback, not only in the game, but in the series, and ended up winning in seven games. I think Doc Rivers referenced it not too long ago when he tried to make the excuse. He sure did, yeah. Josh Smith in that elimination game, guys, scored 19 points on five of nine shooting with six rebounds. You say... Oh, I mean, what's the big deal there? Well, the big deal is he scored 14 points in that fourth quarter, four or five shooting from the field, three or four from three. The Clippers, as a team, scored 15. Oh, no. Blake Griffin was scoreless. They don't tell you the full story. They will tell you. They will tell you that Chris didn't even play the first two games, <laughs> even though we were up 3-1, but Chris did play in two of the three games. Those are the memorable ones, I guess. I'm sure there are more out there and the Lumen Army, you can send us an email with some of your favorite performances from an unlikely hero in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. You know who wasn't the hero? This isn't a play on words on Tyler Hero. I bet that's where you thought I was going, is a mm. pun on Tyler Hero. But I'm not going there. I'm going with Drew Holiday. Oh. Last week on Basketball Illuminati, we had Bob Volgaris on the show. And we asked Bob Volgaris, former exec, former shadow GM of the Dallas Mavericks, who he would imagine would be the best teammate, co-star for Luka Doncic. And he named Drew Holiday, which I think is a great answer. And I'm not denying that. But he has been awful being the number two star for this team, for the Milwaukee Bucks. He's shooting something like 37% since the beginning of the NBA finals last year. Had amazing defensive plays here and there. They don't win the championship without Drew Holiday. But in this series, man, it's been tough to watch Drew Holiday trying to be that Chris Middleton role of the number two scorer for the Milwaukee Bucks. He's a tremendous defensive player, as Bob told us last week. And if you haven't listened to it, Remember, guys, our podcasts, for the most part, are evergreen. All these interviews, and Tom did his own researches, and I was blind segments. They're very timeless. You can listen to them at any time and not have to feel like, oh, this is dated or anything like that. But as Bob said last week, Holiday, if not the best perimeter defensive player in the league, he's certainly up there in the top two or three names that you can mention. But I got to tell you, I've never been enamored with his decision-making or at least not in the last few years. He makes bad decisions, and that's what I've been seeing in this series. 
But guys, I, I got to be honest. Yeah. I just want to talk to Patrick. I don't want Bucks Celtics is cool, but this is a podcast about conspiracies, about things that are happening in the shadows behind closed doors that they don't want you to know, but that we are committed to exposing. Tony Brothers being bad for the Celtics is a three or four on our radar spectrum of how hot and juicy the cabal is working. Patrick Ruby is a perfect 10. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Patrick, I came across your article when I started researching the 1985 draft lottery. And there's like a billion YouTube clips, a billion breakdowns, a billion articles, and nothing really went to the extensive lengths that you did in trying to research and report out conspiracy theories and sports conspiracy theories just in general. But the best part is on the top of the article is this picture of David Stern with a flying saucer that says, I want to believe. And I'm curious, did you make that graphic, Patrick? I did not make it myself, but it was my idea. I thought it would go perfectly. It's an old reference to the 90s X-Files show. X-Files. For those that celebrate, for those that observe, people listening who may have had that poster in their own dorm rooms. <laughs> I always thought it was funny. Just the idea of David Stern. I love floating heads, right? <laughs> That's just always funny visual. I thought it would just work so well, so was very happy that art department people were able to do that. I do not have the technical or creative skills to do it my own. Did you have this idea in your head of going back and looking into the 1985 draft throughout your writing career? Or was this like an assignment that was handed to you by, by an editor? Actually, so I had always wanted to do a story about sports conspiracy theories. And really, I'm fascinated by conspiracy theories. And even more than that, I'm really fascinated by people's need to believe conspiracy theories. I just find that whole aspect of psychology incredibly interesting because in a weird way, I always have felt like people that are sort of into or spin conspiracy theories are almost not different than what we do as journalists in some ways in terms of you are trying to construct a story that makes sense of reality. Now, how you actually do that and sort of the quality of the evidence you use and the things you leave out, totally different in conspiracy theories than in journalism for the most part. But I think that there is a common thread of a human need to understand and a human need to look around the world and feel like, you know what, things aren't random. There has to be a reason why things happen. So what brought you to 1985? To me, it's kind of like the er sports conspiracy theory, right? It's in this perfect time and place where the NBA was big enough and popular enough that you could imagine like nefarious things are going on in the background to like manipulate the important outcomes of something like the draft. At the same time, 
it's like from a bygone era where like all we had back when I did this story in 2012 was this grainy Zabruder film video mm. of the draft lottery that had been uploaded to YouTube. And you look at the comments back then, they're like all these comments. There's a frozen envelope. There's a bent corner. David Stern did not act alone. At the time, I think that there was a lot of feeling that something was fishy about the Knicks getting Ewing or the rights to draft Ewing. As the years went on, it just became more and more of the touchstone. And every time you heard any other sports conspiracy theory, or especially any NBA conspiracy theory, that was always mentioned. So to me, doing a big piece about sports conspiracy theories, this was the place to start. If I could crack this, if I could investigate this, I could maybe understand all of them. Which is very conspiratorial thinking, by the way. (laughs) Patrick, I think one of the most interesting things on your approach is you said to yourself, Okay, 85 draft, gonna have to like figure this thing out. This is the crux to all the other conspiracies. Get me a magician. <laughs> this is the magic trick, huh? Illusion, Michael. Mm. Trick is something a whore does for money. What stage did you convince yourself I need to talk to a pro at misdirection? Well, I just felt like, look, if this actually went down, right? If something actually happened here, if there was more than meets the eye here. I'm not going to walk into NBA headquarters and sit in front of David Stern and be like, tell me the truth, David. Uh If it's a real conspiracy, no one's ever going to let you know. Or maybe like when they're all dead someday, somebody gets a a paper from an archive somewhere and it's like, ha ha ha, I did it. (laughs) But probably not. So my feeling was, if something was going on at the level of messing with the envelopes, right, which was the very popular thought, who would know better than an experienced magician how to spot that, right? And so I found a guy, his name is Richard Kaufman. At the time, he was the editor of a magic magazine called Genie, right? One of the like oldest magic magazines. This guy was an extremely experienced magician. I figured if there's a trick he hasn't seen, it probably doesn't exist yet. Who better to sit down with me, watch this, and ask him what's possible here? What might have happened with the theories people have put out there? And are there other things that could have happened that I'm not seeing because I'm not a magician? Amazingly enough, he was like, yeah, sure. Come over to my place. We'll watch it. I'll talk to you about it. So you went to his house? I went to his house. You know, I live in D.C. and it turns out he lived in Bethesda. So he lived right in the suburbs here. So it was actually very convenient for me. All right. So you sit down, you watch the video with him. Let's just assume, I know he ends up debunking many of your ideas of what might have happened, but let's just assume one of them had happened. Wouldn't that need Commissioner Stern to be practicing hours a day? Or was this stuff that would have been fairly easy to pick up. Well, you know, like one of the popular theories was that the envelope in question that Stern needed to pick out of the big plastic drum was frozen. Mm -hmm. So he would just be able to reach in and feel that one of them was cold. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people base this theory on the idea when he reaches in, if you watch the video, he doesn't just take like the first envelope he touches. Yeah. He kind of fumbles through, I think, three of them before he gets to the fourth one or two before he gets to the third. Which happens to be the one that the head of security or the Ernst & Young executive banged against the drum. So like not only are people like, wait, there's a frozen envelope theory, but also did you catch that they threw it against the corner? That's right. No, exactly. So to answer your question... You could probably set something up that wouldn't require Stern to have a bunch of practice or to spend his time becoming a magician, (laughs) like when he isn't practicing running the NBA and law and whatever things he's doing. (laughs) But the thing about the frozen envelope, and this is what I discovered is, so I actually thought to myself, okay, how long 
does an envelope stay cold where you can feel it? That's the easiest way to test this theory. So I actually did that at home. Again, I can't replicate exactly the type of envelope they had and exactly the placard inside of it, but I did take a standard manila envelope, put a few papers in there, put it in my freezer for about an hour, so I figured that's about as cold as it's going to get. And I didn't like dip it in liquid nitrogen or anything, which I guess could be the next step. But uh, took it out, timed it. It stayed cold for, I think, 53.7 seconds. I actually timed it down to that amount. Really? It went to room temperature in less than a minute? In less than a minute in a 70-degree office. So here's my theory. Can't you just dampen that one? Just a little bit, like almost put it in a sauna. Put some lead in it. Put some metal in it. Something So that it ices up and stays cold longer. Yeah. Put some sweat on there. That would be possible. Also, you guys know there are like, you know, like when you get a cooler to go camping or something, you've got those little frozen inserts. Maybe you could eject a little of that weird freeze liquid oh. into your envelope so that could stay colder. There's probably some CIA level stuff you could do here, but I'm assuming that maybe they weren't quite that sophisticated in 1984. Magic, let me tell you something. I went to the All-Star Weekend in Charlotte in 2019, I believe, and I went to the Tech Summit. And at the Tech Summit, they had a basketball jersey, and Commissioner Silver's up there, and he's talking about the future of wearable technology and all that stuff. And he's got an iPad, and there's an actual basketball jersey on the stage, and on the iPad, he touches a button, and it goes from number 30, Steph Curry, to number 23, Jordan. The actual thing. And in this probably thousand people in this ballroom, my voice at the back of the room echoed with just a yelp. <laughs> <laughs> All I could think of is, this is the technology they let the basketball people have. What are they doing at the Pentagon? Right, so what do they have? What do they have that they're not showing us? This is what they thought was okay to show us, the stupid sports people who chase a ball that goes through a ring. <laughs> and so when you talk about using a more advanced technology than just shoving an envelope in their freezer, I'm here for it. I believe it. It's possible. You know, we do not know if the NBA had a line to DARPA or not. Perhaps they did. So <laughs> it is hard to say. But I tried to reasonably eliminate or at least see if that would make sense. But you're right. As Tom was saying, that is not the only theory. There is the bent corner theory, which is the other really popular one, which is somebody, maybe this guy, Jack Wagner, the accounting firm partner that sort of was supposed to guarantee the integrity of the envelopes. He's a popular figure in these conspiracy theories around the 84 draft, that he bent it so that Stern would be able to see it and or feel it, and that that would be the way that Stern could pick the right one out. And that is where slamming the envelope into the side of the container comes into play, because mm -hmm. that's the only one that gets slammed. And it seems like maybe there's something there. Now, Richard Kaufman, the magician, told me, you know, it really looks like Stern is just fidgeting. He couldn't spot Stern doing this himself. We should remember, though, this video is not in HD. Wow. It's in SD, and it's kind of grainy. So this is something that didn't come up back in 2012 when I was working on it. But now that I have more experience watching HD video, I do think it's probably a little hard to tell some of those really small things that are going on. But still, the bent corner is somewhat impractical. Even if you were going to bend it, slamming it against the side to make it bend seems like a bit of a risk versus just pre-bending it. So it's hard to see if that actually happened. So did you ever, ever actually try to talk to David Stern about this story? I never did. And here's the thing. Stern was notorious for like hating 
conspiracy theories about the NBA in general, but particularly this one. I heard that from the NBA. I heard that from people at ESPN when I, I was working on the story for ESPN. There's a whole backstory where originally I did this big, long story about sports conspiracy theories for ESPN because I was still working with them and for them somewhat at the time. It ended up not publishing with ESPN.com, even though they commissioned me to write it. They paid me to write it. They gave it back to me. I was never told exactly why, but I was sort of told off the record that was because the NBA would get pretty upset with me talking about these conspiracy theories, which I believe I was told from a lot of people. Wait, so Patrick, stop here. Yeah. Because what you're saying is ESPN paid you to do the story. They knew what the story was about. Right. Sent you on these trips. They did. They knew where you were flying. They knew you were seeing. They did. Tom. As someone who's written a lot of in-depth features, take people behind the scenes, what Patrick's experience would have been like. It's not just, hey, Patrick, here's some money, write this. And then he comes back here, finished, right? There's a communication that's going on between you and your editor. You might pitch the story to your editor and you always have an assigning editor or a boss editor where you're like, hey, I'd love to do a, a story about charging in the NBA, like the number of charges in the NBA are on the rise. So you'll just send it to your editor and your editor says, oh, this is a great story. Let me run it by our people. And then once we get the green light, we'll send you on a trip to go do these interviews. So everyone is on the same page. Everyone knows that you're out to do a story and they might even like plot out, okay, let's publish it on this date and let's get some art involved. So there's multiple departments working in concert to make sure that when this story launches on ESPN, or was this an ESPN magazine story that you were commissioned for? That's really interesting. So this was supposed to be for e-ticket, which was kind of like the online version of ESPN magazine feature stories. It doesn't really exist anymore, but that's what they had at the time. And my experience in those days at ESPN was that it was not a very centralized place sometimes. Not all the different fiefdoms within ESPN were on the same page. So e-ticket editor could be like, this is great, let's do it. NBA editor might have heard about it, but is busy doing their daily NBA stuff. The people higher up at ESPN.com, let alone at the network, maybe they heard about the story, but like maybe they heard about after I turned in the first draft. So it wasn't one of those things where, I guess in their defense, I don't think that everybody was on the same page from the start. But clearly once somebody somewhere up the food chain got a look at it, it was like, nope, we can't do this. It's going to make the NBA too upset. And they are our business partner, which is kind of crazy because it's a pretty fun story. And it's fascinating because we often talk about who stands to gain from squashing these sorts of stories, right? a recurring line here at Basketball Illuminati is, we're not saying that any of this is happening. We're just asking questions. We're just curious, like Taylor Jenkins. Yeah, exactly. I'm just curious. Just curious, right? We're just asking a question. And so reading your article, Patrick, it seems like you're just asking questions. You're not equivocally saying that the fix was in on this or that all these other things are actually real other than the ones that have been confirmed. Yeah. Like the Michael Phelps one. I did not know that. Right. I had no idea. No. And that kind of changes the way history remembers Michael Phelps, the greatest Olympian ever, as they remind us all the time. So, Patrick, at some point, when you think about, hey, I wrote this thing, it's well-researched, but also it's fun and it doesn't make many accusations. It just asks questions. Is there anything that makes you think, why are they so threatened by this? The commissioner doth protest too much, methinks. Yeah, that is obviously one of the things you think is like, look, if you have nothing to hide, then why do you seem like you're kind of hiding something? But 
On the other hand, I also just was told by many people over the years that Stern just really hated hearing about this particular conspiracy theory. Why? I'm not sure. But there's a very funny postscript to this, which was after ESPN decided not to run the story, even though they paid me for it, they gave it to me. You know, it's like you can run it wherever you want. I ended up running it with Yahoo of all places. It did very, very well. Like tons of people loved it. I feel like it was a really good story. One of the favorite ones I've ever done, actually. And then ESPN Magazine actually reached back to me because they wanted me to write something just about the 84 draft part of it. No. Can you use some of the stuff you did with the magician and write about it for us? We have an issue devoted to like great debates in sports and you could write about the debate over the 84 draft. So I kind of summarized 85. a couple of these different theories, right? The 85 draft. For ESPN Magazine. Patrick, you keep saying 84 draft and now I think that David Stern's trying to get you confused from up above. <laughs> the ghost from the beyond. 85. Yeah. <laughs> so the magazine decides, hey, Patrick, we kind of want you to write about the greatest debate about the 85 conspiracy theory, and they reel you back in once they saw how successful it was at Yahoo? Yes, basically. And so what happens is I write this little thing, and it just focuses on this one piece of the sports conspiracy world. I go through sort of what the magician told me about these different theories, and sort of concluded, you know, resolved... It was not rigged with an asterisk that says probably at the bottom. <laughs> but this is what happens. I'm watching the NBA finals in the summer of 2012. David Stern comes on halftime in one of the games to talk to Michael Wilbon for his annual halftime interview. Sort of on the other end of the spectrum, this week you found yourself in a little bit of hot water about this whole notion of conspiracy and the lottery. This is not the first time you've heard it. Certainly not the first time you and I have talked about it. I think the people that know the NBA and know me know that we uh, don't take our responsibilities lightly and we, we do everything to make sure that not only do we do it with integrity, but that we do it with transparency. It's too delicious. Uh, if you want to uh, go on YouTube, you could see the 1984 lottery where I supposedly had the frozen... Uh, you know, the frozen card. card or something like that. And, and, and it's all too delightful, really, because ESPN, that uh, magazine, which is the Bible of something, unless you read Sports Illustrated, uh, had, it, had it, there it was again this week over controversies, but they concluded that we got a clean bill of health. And he references my ESPN magazine story, and he says, your own magazine said it's not a conspiracy. And he's got the biggest Cheshire smirk on his face. And I could not believe it. I almost fell off my couch laughing at the, just the whole circularity of all this. In essence, he got you to discredit your own question asking, even though you ended it with an asterisk. But nobody cares about the asterisk because the commissioner said, look, they wrote it. They said it. And there's nothing to it. It is fiendishly devious and brilliant. This is why David Stern is a mastermind. And if you really want to get conspiratorial, mm -hmm. I was the vehicle for discrediting myself, discrediting the theory, mm -hmm. and discrediting all sports conspiracy theories in general. Sounds like magic to me, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe ESPN knew exactly what they were doing with all of this the whole time. Mm. This is like 4D chess. Let me ask you a question, because this comes from me from Tom. So if Tom has betrayed your confidence then you could blame him for this. Way to throw Tom under the bus right there real quick. Yeah. Just do it real quick. There was a moment after ESPN passed that this thing could have ran on Grantland. Yes. Grantland, which was run by Bill Simmons. Grantland, which is renowned of being 
avant-garde and very counterculture, and we're not the old stuffy people at Building Zero on Bristol's campus. We're the cool kids that write about things that the cool kids all talk about for real from the perspective of the fan. And then they didn't. They passed on it as well. Did Grantland or Bill Simmons offer any explanation beyond just not interested? This is another funny coincidence. So I worked at page two at ESPN way back in the day. So I worked with Bill. Yeah, the yellow backdrop. Yeah. We have one of the same editors, right? Bill's editor was one of my editors. I was actually pretty good friends with him. So when ESPN at first said, we don't want this conspiracy theory story, I took it to him at Grantland. I figured it's a nice fit. Also, the story has like 60 footnotes, and they were like a place doing footnotes online. <laughs> yes. So just for formatting purposes, it seemed like a good idea. My editor's like, we really like it. We want to take it. And then like a day or two before they were planning to publish it, he contacts me. It's like, we can't do it. And what he told me, again, this is secondhand, mm-hmm. is that Simmons didn't want to do it for the same reason it was going to piss off the NBA, which is Kind of weird because he also liked to piss off the NBA, at least at one point in his career. That was his lane. Yeah. He also liked to piss off the NFL, which is a way scarier <laughs> entity than the NBA. So that doesn't track. Hey, if you want to talk about pissing off the NFL, you have the right person. Oh. Right That's for football Illuminati football coming Illuminati. soon. Yeah. <laughs> it's the summer. Can't wait. <laughs> if you ever want to talk about brain injuries, bring me back on. <laughs> Did you sit there when you're watching David Stern reference your article that got spiked at the league partner ESPN originally, then you took it to Yahoo and then ESPN sees the traffic that it had at Yahoo and brings you back and says, hey, can you write that story? It's going to run in ESPN, the magazine. It's going to run the week of David Stern's presser. And then he does the presser with Michael Wilbon. You're sitting there watching. Do you have a moment of, did I just get played? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit, but honestly, David Stern's smirk just hit me so hard. It was so classic Stern. It was so funny. And I was just like, I can't believe I made this guy happy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think if you look back on it, you could argue that I was played. And actually, the conspiracy is bigger than anything I imagined. I got Patrick looking like DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just <laughs> holding a beer and then like pointing at the screen like, he's talking about me. He's talking about my article. Oh, man, like this, I'm mad. How many episodes of this podcast have we had? 15, 14? It was just a question, Maze. I mean, it's been 12. I'm asking a question, Maze. I'm asking a question. I'm just genuinely curious what episode this is. I believe it's episode 13. Okay, lucky number 13, by the way, that comes out on the week of Friday the 13th. And also, by complete coincidence, comes out the week of the anniversary of the 85 draft lottery, May 12, 1985. My mind keeps traveling back to our intro where we talk about basketball is run by a cabal of a certain number of individuals. And I think it's been a while. To be honest, guys, I think we lost our fastball. We've been kind of putting out conspiracies and stuff. But over the last couple of weeks, we've fallen into the cozy embrace of mainstream basketball analysis. And Patrick has given me like a shot of Red Bull and a bump of cocaine back into the system. I want to go ahead and tear everything down now. Patrick, what is your favorite basketball conspiracy? My personal favorite, and this is another one I tried to investigate in that story, but didn't get very far. Game six of the Kings-Lakers Western Conference Finals. Yes. Just the insane refereeing in that game. You'll never convince me that wasn't rigged. What happened with Doug Christie? Can you tell us what happened with Doug Christie there? My favorite part. 
other than the magician? It was so long ago, but basically I had gotten a DVD copy of that game. And again, this is back in 2012, so that wasn't all easy. I actually think I might have gotten it from that guy, Roland Breach at A2Games.com. <laughs> Great cameo from Roland Breach, yeah. I actually had gotten Doug Christie to agree to like let me fly out to California, sit with him, and watch it. And just talk about what do you see? What was it like on the court? Just give me some insight. Let me try to figure out what happened here with an eyewitness who was part of the game. And the reason why you singled him out is because he posted on his own blog or on a blog, Doug Christie wrote, I am devastated to the point of feeling physically sick. What's real and what's fake? The fans didn't get a chance to see the true champions in quotation marks. Well, now why know why? If these allegations are true, this is really disheartening. You work hard, play hard, and it's all bull, dot, dot, dot. Whoever they say are the champs are the champs deserving or not. They are controlling the whole thing. Goosebumps. He seemed open to the possibility that there are nefarious larger forces at work. And so, of course, I want to talk to him. But what happened was multiple times I had set up time to visit him, we're going to do this, and kept shifting it, kept moving it forward. And then finally, the day before I was supposed to go, we canceled. And I never really got much of an explanation. My feeling was maybe they wow. got to him too. So here's the thing. You describe how the DVD doesn't arrive on time, or it does, but somehow your doorman misplaced it. That's right. By the time you get to talk to Doug, to reschedule, it's a little hard because he's trying to get back in the league. And then when you revisit it later down the line, he's got new management. New management tells you he wants to do television, so he doesn't want to upset the apple cart. How convenient, I mean. It's convenient. I would have said it's a coincidence. But Patrick, I'm going to send in the chat here a quote from your article about coincidences. And I want you <laughs> to read it out loud because I want this to be part of our show lexicon. A sane person doesn't believe in coincidence. A sane person believes in causation. Connects the jumbled dots. These dots, they're connected, ladies and gentlemen. That really gets back to what drew me to this topic in the first place, which is we are all trying to do this all the time in our lives. I just think it's human nature to believe that things have a cause. Things are connected. Stuff isn't just random. And actually, this is something that I try to say in the story. It is kind of terrifying to think that there's this hidden hand controlling the world around us, but it's more terrifying to think that there's no hidden hand and that, for his lack of a better term, shit just happens. That's actually really scary. And I think most of us deep down cannot abide by that. Well, and especially, and again, look up this article. It's available at patrickruby.net. It's not at ESPN anymore. And the one that you did get published in ESPN, the magazine that David Stern references is gone too. That one, I don't think we can find. I couldn't find it. I have a physical copy. I used to have one and I've moved and I lost it. So. Oh, wow. Convenient. Oh, wow. You've already been part of the conspiracy once. Misplaced by the mailman again. Yes. Did you pay movers for that job, Patrick? <laughs> you guys did have your pieces on. Yeah, one of them was suspiciously tall. <laughs> I played in the NBA. PatrickRuby.net. Patrick, H-R-U-B-Y.net. The name of the article is The Truth Is Out There. Like I said, you pointed out a bunch of things that were considered conspiracies. Turns out it's real. No, it's absolutely real. And one of them was 
the Michael Phelps one, which again, I still can't wrap my head around because I literally have never heard this. Right. Not even that it was up for debate. They kind of just swept it all under the rug. But you've got that. You've got the Beijing Olympics. Well, Donaghy, right? Donaghy is one of the main ones where it's like something was really happening there. Right. If you go look at Spygate in the NFL, they definitely destroyed a bunch of tape. Literally, the general counsel of the NFL, Jeff Pash, stomped them out with his shoes (laughs) so that they wouldn't be evidence. Like, most good conspiracy theories, right, or most of the ones that we can never really solve and that we turn over in our minds, there's something there. They're usually not based on, like, complete fiction. There's always a kernel of truth. And I think, again, that's one of the things that's so interesting about human psychology is, like, what do we build out of those kernels? And if you think about stuff that isn't a conspiracy theory, right, think about stuff that is well-known and well-accepted, we still do the same thing. Most of us don't know every facet of everything, so we have to sort of build a story around what we do know. This is a good example, but you get on an airplane, right? You fly to another city. Do you know exactly how an airplane works and why it won't crash or it's very unlikely to crash? I don't, but I sort of understand what a jet engine is. I sort of understand the idea that air goes under the wings and lifts a plane, and I have to build a story from there so I can trust getting on it. <laughs> so, Patrick, one of the things that you did, you might have thought about, but it wasn't in your story, and I'm, I'm curious your reaction to it. The LA Times, the day after May 12th, 1985, wrote a story just kind of like eyes and ears at the draft lottery. And on the Monday after the draft, both New York tabloids ran stories. And I think the Daily News is considered a tabloid in this. The New York Daily News reported that the accounting firm of Ernst & Winnie, which was hired by the NBA to seal the envelopes and ensure that the selection process was fair, also audits the accounts of Gulf and Western. Hmm. Gulf of Western owns the Knicks. It was not immediately known if any of the other teams in the lottery use Ernst and Winnie. Here's the crazy part. Asked about any possible foul play. Jack Crumpy, the Madison Square Garden president, smirked and said, quote, Hey, I told them how to fix it 60 days ago. You call up Ernst and Winnie and you say, if we don't get Ewing, you're fired. You know, I had no conscious memory of doing that, but obviously I must have because they found a glove there. That's a perfect way to cover something up. You just joke and like, oh, that's so ridiculous that you'd even suggest that. I'm so confident. I'll just tell you a joke. But actually, I might be telling you the truth. Wink. Who knows? It's like a wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, they were just did things just to do them. Come on, I mean, what am I going to do? Just, just all of a sudden just jump up and grind my feet on somebody's couch like it's like it's, you know, something to do. Come on, I got a little more sense than that. Yeah, I remember grinding my feet on Eddie's couch. You know? When I told Amin about this fact, he was like, who would be dumb enough to say that? But maybe that's part of the cover-up is like, why don't we just say that thing out loud in a joking way? And then people would be like, yeah, they would be too dumb to say it out loud. Something we saw in the last presidential administration was a lot of that technique being used. And I don't know if it was intentional, but there was a lot of saying the thing you're doing out loud. (laughs) And then it turns out, yes, they're actually doing that. It's a tactic I've employed many a time to get out of certain situations. Like, hey, did you break the lamp? Yes, I broke the lamp. Oh, yeah. I walked in flailing my arms and accidentally (laughs) knocked down the nap and cut knocked it. Yes, that was me. You're happy, right? You say it like that. It's like, okay, you don't have to be a jerk. I was just asking. Because the implication is, through my very sarcastic tone, 
that I am actually doing the opposite. I'm saying I didn't do it. But if I'm ever cornered and caught and said, hey, I thought you said you didn't break the lamp. No, oh no, I said on the record that I did break the lamp. I just said it very sarcastically. Same thing with this character, this guy is former president of Madison Square Garden. The ability to say, hell yeah, we rigged it. And we know exactly how to rig it. Even today, Ernst Young is still doing the security for yes. the NBA draft lottery. Not only the draft lottery, for everything. For the voting, right? When you vote for awards, you you don't get an email from the NBA. You get an email from Ernst and Young, and then you got to log into their website and answer everything. I think about Anderson Consulting and some of the great scandals that have happened over the last twenty years. Why do we trust Ernst and Young? Like, oh no, but Ernst and Young took care of it. Why is that even a thing? Is that the NBA's way of just deflecting out of the ridiculousness of saying, "How can I trust that this is real?" Well, Ernst and Young oversaw it. Oh, well, in that case. <laughs> We just step away. A couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, if they've been doing it this long, you would think they would know where any bodies are buried, to use a favorite phrase of David Stern's. Yeah, he loves that one. So in yep. this case, if I'm the NBA, I might want to stick with them. So that's a little bit potentially suspicious right there. But I do agree with you. Look, you're right. In corporate America, we know these accounting firms, these places that are supposed to be auditors, that are supposed to be places that verify and create trust. They don't always do that. Sometimes they're doing the opposite. Sometimes they are going along for the paycheck. The financial crisis we went through at 2008, 2009, remember all the things that were giving out these AAA ratings, mm-hmm. and it turns out they were being paid by the banks that they were giving the ratings to? Those kinds of conflict of interests are real, and they could be something that has a bearing on something like NBA draft lottery security, or maybe not. But it's not completely crazy and unreasonable to think that a conflict of interest can lead to an actual conflict. Last thing I wanted to ask you here is, did you catch the Jim Rome interaction on his radio show with David Stern in 2012? You know, New Orleans won the draft lottery, which of course produced the usual round of speculation that maybe the lottery was fixed. I know that you appreciate a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy was the fix in for the lottery. Uh. You know, I have two answers for that. I'll I'll give you the easy one. No, and a statement. Shame on you for asking. You know, I, I understand why you would say that to me, and I wanted to preface it by saying it respectfully. I think it's my job to ask because I think people wonder. No, it's ridiculous, but that's okay. I, I know, you know I, I know that back. you think it's ridiculous, but I don't think the question is ridiculous because I know people think that. I'm not saying yet? I'm not saying that I do, but I think it's my job to ask you that. I, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yeah, I don't know if that's fair. Oh, David Stern. He's a little bit doing the deflection thing we were just talking about, though. That's beyond deflection. Like, how dare you even ask that? That is calculated, researched slander to avoid answering questions and put someone on their heels. I don't know if that's fair. Why is that? Because I think that there are, and I know you read your emails, and I'm sure you follow things virally and on Twitter. People really do think it, whether it's fair or not. Well, they think it because people you don't. Like you don't think you. the question's fair to ask if, if your fans think it? Silly questions. I expect it to be written about, and you know, I actually I, I commented last night at my presser that there was one guy who I won't dignify by naming says I have no reason to know anything, and I don't know anything, but I tell you, I believe it's fixed. Okay, that's good. Why is that? Well, because this team won it. And if that team won it, it would have been fixed also. And if that team won it, it would have been fixed also. And if and if uh, every team was invited to have a representative there, and if there were four members of the media there, and if Ernst and Young certified it, 
you still think yes. So I, I guess I, I, I guess think two I'm, things. Uh, let me. Which response to this? I think two things. Number one, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'm not covering myself. I don't think so. But I think by asking the question, it would not suggest that I think so. But the one thing I would say, the league does own the team, does it not? Yes. Does that not make the question fair? I don't think so. Uh, and people write about it, uh, and it's okay to write about it, and we sort of expect it. But you know, that's not a that's a that's not a question that I've uh, been asked before by a respectable journalist. I, I think I understand why you're frustrated by that. I think that I understand why that would upset you. I would hope that you would not hold that against me. I wouldn't hold it against you. I've, I've, you know, you and I have been into more contentious discussions than that. I don't know. I'd put that one right up there. Well, you know, it's, it's good copy and you do things sometimes for cheap thrills. I didn't, I did not do that for a cheap thrill. That's not what that was. No, it sounded like it. No, not at all. No, see, that's my point. That's where you and I, that's our well, point of good. disconnect. That was not a cheap thrill and I was not throwing anything against the wall and I was trying to be as respectful as possible. I'm just saying that people wonder about that. And I don't want to ask you a question by, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to say, hey, commissioner, people would say, because I'm going to ask a direct question, but people did wonder. But that was not a cheap thrill. Well, I got no thrill out of that. It's a cheap trick. No, flopping is a cheap trick. No, no. But listen, you've been successful in making a career of it, and I keep coming on. Making so a career of what, though? Commissioner, see, that, that, I take great offense to that. Making a career of what? What offense? Cheap are thrills? Taking, are you taking offense? I am now. I now said? I am. If you're saying now that I've made a career your, of making cheap thrills. Time, you know, uh, taking on the world, and now Jim Rome is pouting? I love it. No, I'm not pouting. It's I take great. offense. Uh, there's a difference between pouting and taking offense. I take offense to that like you took offense to the question. What if I said, were okay, you pouting when I asked the question? Taking offenses. You want to hang up on me? No, I, well, no, I can't okay. hang up on you because I'm running out of time. I would never hang up on you. Okay. Listen, I got to go call somebody important like Stephen A. Smith now. He's up next. Patrick mentioned the quote about David Stern knowing where the bodies are buried. The full quote is, I know where the bodies are buried. I put them there. That is a David Stern quote. I know where the bodies are buried. I put them there. So did you stop beating your wife is Pretty low level compared to what kind of David Stern some wild cities. He said that, by the way, during CBA negotiations in a lockout. That's right. Just so we're clear, he didn't say this like flippantly in an interview. He said this while negotiating against the other side, basically telling them to stand down. But that Jim Rome interview, I told Tom when he brought it up the other day, like I remember working in a front office and listening to it live and asking people, can he do that? <laughs> Are you allowed to do that? You had the reaction of the announcer in semi-pro when they dunked for the first time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what just happened. A very unusual series of moves just made the ball go in. So at the end of this, I'm wondering, it's 2022. It's coming out the week of May 12th of 1985 anniversary, right? Do you think the 1985 draft lottery was rigged? I think it's more likely that it wasn't, but I would not say with 100% certainty that it was on the level. Now, I do think a larger thought about draft lotteries and conspiracies, which is the entire draft itself, and you just mentioned CBA negotiations, I think the entire draft itself is my favorite kind of conspiracy, which is the conspiracies are hiding in plain sight. Drafts are essentially a conspiracy to reduce the bargaining position of these players coming to the NBA. 
and to lower their salaries. And you add all this other CBA stuff in there in terms of rookie scale and all this other stuff you've added over the years. But to me, that's the real conspiracy that you don't even need to investigate to see. And I do think that our world, our society, is full of conspiracies like that. And while it's really fun to go after these more far-fetched ones, and sometimes they're real, I think sometimes we'd be better off directing our energies at the ones we can see. Two quotes, by the way, from this LA Times article, Tom. One of them is Stern (laughs) saying, if people want to say the lottery was fixed, fine, as long as they spell our name right. That means they're interested in us. That's terrific. And then the end line of the article. Remember, this is an article from May 1985. They mentioned the Jack Crump quote, and they say Crump was joking, presumably. And then they say Stern didn't joke about rumors of a fix. He seemed to ignore the questions, perhaps hoping they would go away. 27 years later, ladies and gentlemen, we're still asking questions. They'll never go away until they get answered. You can't make the questions go away when you've got something like this. What does that look like? You doing your own research? Are you doing studies yourself? Are you in the lab on a nightly basis? What are you doing? Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research. Doing your own research. I'm not a scientist. I'm not here to tell everyone that this is it. For me, it's just um, just giving everyone a chance to do their own research and find their own knowledge. This Tom did his own research is inspired by the interview that David Stern did with Jim Rome that, you know, a lot of people remember as the do you still beat your wife comment. But later in the interview with Jim Rome, David Stern basically accuses him of going for cheap thrills. And he called that question, is the fix in? That's a cheap thrill question, that it's not a real journalistic question. He backed off of that a little bit, David Stern realizing that it's the responsibility of a journalist to ask questions and you shouldn't be barking back when it's a pretty reasonable question. When the MSG executive is saying, yeah, I told them to fix it. It's pretty easy. Told the accounting firm, Ernst & Young, Ernst & Winter back in the day, this is how you do it. So later in the interview, Jim Rome says, you know what's a cheap trick? Flopping. This was a big deal. I mean, you remember like in the 2012 playoffs and, and right around that time in the NBA, flopping was a huge deal. And they had to actually implement anti-flopping rules to curb the act of embellishing and trying to fix these calls with referees. You remember that, I mean? Yeah, I'm glad we cleaned all that up. That's it's just a thing of the past and we don't see flopping anymore because the penalties, of course, they made were so severe. Do you guys remember what the penalties are for flopping? Yeah, it was like after your 16th violation, you were fined for $5,000. Yeah, so the (laughs) first penalty, and guys, brace yourself. This might sound like it comes from communist Russia, but the first penalty was a warning. Mm. They'd review it after the game, and then they say, hey, if you do this and we catch you doing it and we review it, your first thing is we're going to warn you. Hey, don't do that again. Then on the second violation, and guys, I know that was extreme enough. They find you $5,000 and then $10,000 on your third violation, $15,000 on your fourth violation, $30,000 on your fifth violation, and for a sixth or any subsequent violation of the rule, players would be subject to discipline as the league determines is reasonable under the circumstances, including an increased fine and slash or suspension. And guys, 
we never saw a flop again. Never did. Wait, that's weird because I have this quote here from Ime Udoka. I know you don't want to talk about Buck Celtics anymore. I mean, I know that just annoys you, but <laughs> he said that the referee's explanation is if the defenders don't fall down, they don't call it. I've got to teach my guys to flop a little more. Oh, boy. Well, funny he mentions that because we had an interview with Don Vaden, the former director of officials here on this here program about how you kind of do have to fall to sell the call. He had a great story about when he was an NBA official and a certain player, I'll leave the name out of it, was involved in a flopping or an offensive call. And he basically said the whole crowd was angry at me when I made the call because he didn't flop. He didn't fall down. So it's a very important part of the trick, the cheap trick that Jim Rome said in that interview. Cheap thrills. Cheap thrills song, cheap trick band. band. Right. Important distinction here. Very important. That's why you listen to this show. I looked it up and found that offensive fouls are way up this postseason. Way up. The average team is drawing 2.53 offensive fouls per 100 possessions, which is up from 1.7 last postseason, which, do the math, carry the two. That's an increase of 50% more offensive fouls being called in the NBA this postseason, which is the highest offensive foul rate in over 15 years. All this data, by the way, is from our friends, the truth-telling friends at pbpstats.com, an indispensable resource for truth. Oh, love those guys. Now, my question to you, which player has drawn the most offensive fouls this postseason? Ooh, I'm blinded by the lights. Normally, Kyle Lowry would be a strong contender for this, but he's been a little banged up. Oh, man, this is a great question. Marcus Smart? Ding, 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 ding. Wow. And he's missed the game, didn't he? Udoka was like, you know what? Maybe we need to teach our guys how to fall more and to get those calls. Well, it turns out Marcus Smart has five offensive fouls that are not considered charges and six charges for a grand total offensive fouls of 11. Imagine if he just fell a little bit more. I mean, if Marcus (laughs) Smart could learn how to flop. It would change the game. He might win Defensive Player of the Year one day <laughs> if he only dedicates himself to that end of the floor. In Tom's personal record book. Who's number two? I feel like we're playing hurdle right now. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. got to get the, the division right. And- Let's go to the West. Let's go with Maxi Kleba. I'm giving you a gray square for the Western Conference. Mm. Okay, okay. Back to the East. Maze, call me crazy. You're crazy. But I kind of feel like, does this player play for the Celtics? No. no. Tom wouldn't do that to us. I, want, I wanted it to be the same team two days in a row on Pirtle. Okay. Drew Holiday? Nope. But you're getting warmer. The green square on the team. Someone for the Bucks. Oh, big Brooke Lopez, right? Nope. Not Brooke Lopez. I mean, Giannis doesn't take charges. No, he doesn't take charges, man. He's the other side. He's leading the league in offensive right. fouls called with 16. The only person who is close, not even close, is Carl Towns with nine. And the answer is Wesley Matthews. Wes Matthews. Oh, yeah. Well, he does now. You know what he's really good at is the screen foul, the moving screen, drawing a foul. There was one where he was full court pressing and Al Horford was in the backcourt setting the screen in transition. 
and Wes Matthews clipped Al Horford's foot, fell down and tripped on Al Horford's foot. And I'm like, he didn't mean to do that. That's not a flop, right? But then I'm kind of thinking like some of these guys are so good at sensing, you know, the screen being set behind them. Kind of like a jump shooter sticks his leg out and like Wes Matthews is like sticking his leg out to fall over when the screen is set. So he has nine offensive fouls, non-charge related, and one categorized as a charge for a total of 10. He is tied with Jay Crowder. A former Celtic, Jay Crowder has 10 himself, which might change. We might see that Jay Crowder racks up a few more later this week. But that is, Tom did his own research on flopping, the cheap trick, the cheap thrill of the NBA. Right, Jim Rome? The cheapest. You really sold that one, Tom. Great interview. It's not the first time that an ESPN story has spiked, I mean. No, there's another example of this. Well, you know, I worked at ESPN for about a decade and there was one particular story relating to Ethan Strauss that I had always heard about. I didn't know firsthand. And I was wondering if Ethan was ever going to write about this. And then miraculously Uh on Tuesday of this week, when we talked to Patrick Ruby about his story being spiked by ESPN, Ethan writes about the story that got spiked at ESPN relating to Mark Jackson. Wow. What a convenient coincidence for that to be appearing synergistically out there on Ethan's Substack. Oh shit, man. Do we have time for another segment here? I want to talk about no, this. I mean, another story got spiked. We got to get this out to the people. We got to give them the truth. They're expecting their weekly delivery every Wednesday morning. Just put this in the bank. Fine. The truth bank. <laughs> 